It's episode 49 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast, your weekly Milwaukee Brewers podcast. I'm Steve Garshinski. Joining me today is J.P. Breen and Ryan Topp. And we're wrapping up that first half pretty quick here. It can't come soon enough. <laughs> it really can't. J.P., you, you forgot there was uh, two games today, right? I just assumed that everybody was hurt. Not <laughs> like, actually, they couldn't field a team anymore. They just don't even have a team. <laughs> they just had a pass written out saying uh, they don't need to show up today because they're all sick or injured it's like the first game in the fourth season of uh of friday night lights they just like come out to the field for the second half and are like sorry we're we're out tapping out no moss no moss so well we'll 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 talk more about uh the first half and what went well i think that'll make this a a more interesting podcast for people to listen to so and i uh, mean by the time people listen to this the brewers may have reeled off three straight and this is all like just pointless that's a possibility but we're not counting on it so uh you can help fans find the podcast by rating and reviewing milwaukee's tailgate on apple podcasts we want listener questions so follow milwaukee's tailgate on twitter at mke tailgate email questions to milwaukee's.tailgate at gmail.com or follow our facebook page you can also follow the three of us on twitter and you'll find that in our milwaukee's tailgate twitter bio and finally if you'd like to support the podcast you can visit patreon.com slash mke tailgate our ball and glove level patrons receive the monthly minor league extra podcast. Milwaukee's tailgate is sponsored by carbon Four brewing from dragon flute to block party to fantasy factory IPA. K4 specializes in English style malt bombs and perfectly balanced hop grenades. Thursday, July 13th, Carbon 4 is re-releasing a small batch of Strawberry Fantasy Factory, which we currently have. We are drinking as we speak. Because we were at the brewery earlier today. Recording, yeah. Recording an interview that will run later in this podcast with uh, Ryan Koga, who's the uh, brewmaster at Carbon 4. Right? Yes. You yes. were there? I, I was looking you, for we were, feedback. We, we were both there. We yes. were both there. So we got to try a bunch of stuff while we were there, which is the best way to do it when you're at a brewery is try a bunch of stuff. Yes. We got to have a, a little sampling. So, yeah, currently we have the Strawberry Factory, uh, Strawberry Fantasy Factory. That's only available in kegs for a limited time, so go to the brewery for that one over on Kinsman Boulevard. Bring your growler, get a pint, too, while you're there. Um, Who knows, that, that might be at one of the events that they have coming up, because they have a bunch of events. People were asking us this. Didn't we have a question in here about when are they going to be opening up a uh, tap room in Milwaukee? Yes. So, and multiple people have asked us that, and actually the answer we got to that, we got off air, but he was like, well, it's... There have been talks. Yeah. So it's it's something that's, you know, been they're, discussed. They're thinking about it. Um, don't, don't promise anything for them. I'm not. Yeah. I'm just saying. I'm just saying it, it's been discussed. So, um, But there will be a tap takeover at Ray's Growler Gallery this Wednesday, the 18th, which is on Milwaukee's near north side. Is that in Tosa? Or is it technically, it's like right on the border there. Yeah, it's Wauwatosa. Okay. And then also, there's going to be a tap takeover at Tally's Tap, which I believe is out in Waukesha. Um there's going to be a tap tech over on the following Friday, the 27th, at Humboldt Park in Milwaukee, and also in La Crosse at uh, Copeland Craft Beer Fest. Yeah. So check any of those out. And also, July 15th is National Ice Cream Day, and Sassy Cow will be in the tap room serving ice cream. Uh, don't miss that. As always, check out uh, details on all their events at carbon4.com. Carbon 4 Beer Brilliance. And Milwaukee's Tailgate is sponsored in part by Sound Devices, a premier manufacturer of audio production gear, and they're located right here in Wisconsin. Sound Devices gear is used worldwide and is found on the set of Oscar-winning films and popular TV shows. 
And if you're looking to create a professional-sounding podcast, check out the MixPre 3 and MixPre 6. For more information, visit sounddevices.com. So we're wrapping up the first half, and there was some good news this week, this past week. There was? There was there are five All-Stars oh, yes, from the Spurs team. Yes. We're going into the All-Star break. That That's exciting. Don't you think so, JP? I, I think it's really exciting for all of those players. Well, yeah, and I, I, Jeremy Jeffress uh, ended up being he took over one of the the injury spots or replacement spots, and certainly I think it meant a lot to him to get that spot. Oh, it certainly did. I think he's he's obviously had a, a long road through his professional development, both in terms of before he was able to even reach the big leagues, um, and. He has found a lot of success in Milwaukee. He struggled elsewhere, and he's always come back. He's had a home here. He's always pitched well, and I think at this point, he is not only in the best stretch of his career, which I think is undeniable, and I agree with Craig Council that he is getting better as a pitcher. Um, I think his stuff is getting better. He's getting more confident. Obviously, his splitter has been a huge addition to, to his repertoire. He's – I don't know if he's – been as good as Hater, just because Hater has obviously been able to strike out so many people. But in terms of run prevention, he's been better. And he has been the Brewers' fireman this year, getting them out of really tough spots. And so I think it's really for, – for him, you could tell how much it meant to him. And, and those are the reasons why the All-Star picks obviously matter because – they matter so much to the players, and for somebody like Jeremy Jeffers, who has had the kind of career it is, it's a lot of validation for the hard work he's put in. Yeah. So uh, the other fun part was Jesus Aguilar won the fan vote. Brewers fans turned going out going away. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was a. I think it was. His total was second only to Justin Turner. I think like last season. Okay. Yeah. Like in total votes right. gotten by uh, one of the winners. So I mean that's saying something because Turner Turner plays for the Dodgers. Right. That's kind of a big market. Well, and they beat out Max Muncy, who was with the Dodgers. Yeah. So, again, when when Mil- Milwaukee fans get behind a guy, they can definitely uh, uh, Which win. Which is weird, because because Cubs fans said that uh, there weren't enough Brewers fans to actually be able to do this. So It was all the Russian bots, I think, were still in <laughs> Wisconsin. Or it was all the Cubs fans that uh, have made up the $3 million Plus at Miller Park that just decided to actually become Brewers fans and vote for Aguilar anyway. Oh, yes, Cubs fans. They're an interesting bunch. They, they've been dedicated for the last four years. It's some kind of weird Stockholm syndrome that they've been going to Miller Park so much that they're actually like, you know what? I actually really like that guy. Yeah. I really like Jesus Aguilar. <laughs> he's, pitched, he's, he's been really good. Um, so yeah, the all-star game's coming up. That'll be fun to see. Uh, Aguilar is actually in the home run derby, so that'll be fun to watch. Mm-hmm. And that'll number be number one seed, man. Number one seed. Is he seated number one? That's apparently that's how they do it now. I noticed that seven of the eight guys from the home run derby are from national league guys now. Yeah. I don't think they care about getting AL NL. They just try to get, well, they used they to, just, they used to try to they actually just tried to get people to say yes. Yeah, I mean, sure. that I mean, that was... Honestly, yeah. they, they had a really difficult time getting people to take part. Yeah, I saw Mookie Betts saying, yeah, basically they need to do something. He wants a skills competition, so like he can show off his arm from the outfield or Nobody something. Nobody cares about that. Well, we, we just want to watch dingers. I would watch that more. No, I'd watch that more. I actually, I said it as a joke on Twitter, but I'm 100% serious. I want non-baseball skills during 
during during the All Star game. Just random, want, like like beer yeah, pong want, and like, like bags. They could take out some bags and play like that. woodworking competition. I want to see. <laughs> I want to see like a baking competition to see who's like just amazing. At we baking. got Ron Swanson over here trying to bagging groceries. Like who can? I want like some kind of quiz bowl competition <laughs> where uh, where like Brent Suter can go in and just like dominate everybody. Um, yeah, I want like I would absolutely turn in for tune in for something like that. It's it's like an all day event too. It's not just a few hours. Of course, with the way some of those home run derbies go, they tend to take a while. They could they could have like a golf tournament on the side that everybody could go. Everybody could go to. So many baseball players would be into that. Yeah. Okay. My one comment about the home run derby: just keep it moving. Like they've that's a little bit better they, about they've, that. This. They've kind of, they've gotten better about that recently. They've but, streamlined it into a like a more of a two hour package instead of something that could like run like three plus. Yeah, I mean that's a Does, big thing. Keep it moving. Get new guys up there to hit. That's basically you know keeps people. Is Chris Berman still doing it? No, he is mercifully gone. He's he's with leather now. Um, okay, so a little bad news going into the break besides uh, the, the rough go they've had in, in Pittsburgh. Well, last two games in Miami and then in Pittsburgh, right? Uh, no, they uh, won the middle game in Miami. Okay, that's They won Tuesday. Um, but in the first game in Pittsburgh, Thames and Guerra went down? Yes. Uh, yes. No, it was last night. It was last Friday. Night. It was the second God, game. They're all bl- all these bad games are blending together. It, it's just it's one thing after another. Yeah. Okay. So Thames, you know, got like his first at bat in uh, Friday night's game, mm, and, and then, then got replaced. And then he got replaced, and Hernan Perez came in, and he's money up there. So obviously he knocked in a run with the single, but that was pretty much it. I mean, they were competing late into those games. At least they were. We were talking about this a little bit before. They were putting runners on, and they were scoring some r- late runs and had chances if they had gotten late dingers in those games to. Either tie it or or get you know within a run. Yeah, they like, they, they haven't been chances. Yeah, they haven't been completely out of games. But um, yeah, things, well, they haven't quit. Like people, I think there's some accusations of that flying around. It's like no, they're not quitting. They're just they're they're running bad right now. They're running cold, and that's you know 162 games. It's going to happen to the best of teams. Yeah, I mean, what do you do when you see that going into an all-star break, JP? I mean, how, how do you take that as a fan? Because, you know, if you have a bad run and then you have a week to think about it, basically, because they're off. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it feels bad. And that's what it comes down to. I think I one of the biggest things for me has been a lot of, a lot of people on Twitter have been trying to not necessarily temper expectations. I don't think that's the right term, but trying to keep a level-headed approach about the bad run they've they've been on right now. Trying to explain the fact that, like Ryan said, right, so this this is going to happen over 162 games, um, and there's been some backlash on that, saying, you know, don't, losses are bad. Are you trying to tell us how to feel? All of these things. No, watching bad baseball sucks. There, There is nothing enjoyable about watching the Brewers lose, but the overarching point is the fact that not every single loss or every bad performance or every bad uh, start from a starter means something about the season or that person's career. And trying to suggest that, yes, the team lost or has lost a few games in a row 
that doesn't necessarily mean anything because either what you're saying is this loss right now is a signal that, you know, the expectation that the Brewers aren't very good. Now suddenly we're going to throw out three months of production just because the last four, four or five days feel bad. And I was worried that these four or five days were going to come in the first place. And now I'm going to use this to be able to say that the end is coming, right? Like it's trying to understand that, yes, you can compartmentalize your your emotions and saying that this sucks. I hated watching this game and I feel bad, but not necessarily say it means anything about the entire 162 and trying to be able to, to bring those things together. You mean the Brewers don't hand out an award for the first person to declare done? Like, no, there's yeah, the no first, award for The that. first person to be like, "I'm this team's done. They're they're over with. They, there's no award for that." No. Oh. So, well, no, but it, it allows people to protect themselves and feel better because they're afraid of thinking that the team might be able to do something good, and they don't want to get their hopes up just to do something, you know, to fall to fail at the end. They'd much rather be able to protect themselves and then feel like they're surprised in the end that you know something good happened. But I was always protecting myself just in case something bad happened. Yeah. It's it's a common thing. I think most of us go through it at some point where, you know, you worry. Yeah, you worry like, oh, maybe I need to just, you know, temper my expectations. So um, but they're still in position. They're over halfway through the season. They're still leading the division or, you know, on Saturday, they're still leading the division. At worst, they'd be what a game down if the Cubs win out and the Brewers lose out. Right now, they're they're technically even they're behind in percentage because they've played four more games than the Cubs. Though after today, it'll be you know two more games or five more games. Yeah. So, I mean, they're going to come into this right in the thick of, of of a division race, no matter what. Yes. Like that's you know even in the worst case scenario, they're going to be yeah they'll come into it right in the thick of a division race. So. Yeah. It's if if they if they absolutely tank the next three games, they go in on a five game losing streak. They're going to be twelve games over five hundred going into the All Star break. I like I understand that going in on a five game losing streak feels shitty, and that it's you're going to sit around and think for the entire All Star break what could have been if they were able to to play better going in. But they're everyone would have taken a 12 game over 500 uh, record going into the All-Star game. That's ridiculous to think anything otherwise. Or a two and a half game deficit if, if it does turn out to be the very worst case scenario. But he's saying overall what their record is going to be by the time they hit the All-Star break, regardless of what happens the rest of the weekend. It's going to be fine. Everyone, yeah. everyone would have taken that performance. So yes. anyway, so we're going to do a little recap uh, impressions on the first half performance. Um, you know, because we've some things have met expectations, other things have been, you know, exceeded or disappointing or whatever. So um, anyways, I want to kind of touch on the offense first. Um, I guess what are overall impressions of the offense? You know, we were excited with Kane and Yelich coming in. They were going to be an offense that was able to maybe grind out a little bit more better on base guys. Um, they've ended up pretty top heavy still. Yeah, very much so. And that's that doesn't seem to you know likely change a whole lot unless you get a big addition of somebody like Manny Machado then that does lengthen the lineup out but even then you're still looking at not a top to bottom lineup now most teams don't actually have a true top to bottom lineup that's relatively rare you know the teams that do have that stand out the the mid 90s 
Cleveland Indians or something like that. But yeah, I mean, they have a an offense that relies very much on the best players in it. And fortunately for them, they've had a pretty wide variety of guys who've had runs this season that have that allowed that to carry even through injuries. So you've had at, at various points during the season, Eric Thames got hot and carried them very early in the season offensively. Jesus Aguilar kind of picked right up after that and and did that. Um, Kane and Yelich have had various runs. They both started really hot and have had runs later as well, but both have also been injured. Uh, Travis Shaw had a, a time period where he was doing well too. I mean, these guys have all had their kind of taken their turns at being very good and sort of helping carry the offense. And they honestly have more guys capable of doing that as well. We haven't seen anything from Domingo Santana yet. In fact, he's in the minor leagues and he's perfectly capable of doing that as well. If he figures it out because we saw it last year, we've seen it. Yeah. So JP, uh, I mean, do you think this offense can balance itself out or are they going to need to go outside uh, and make an acquisition to really, I think, get it on track? I don't necessarily think that they need to upgrade the the offense like significantly to make it a lot better. What they need to do is get healthy. And I've if we're talking about like impressions of the first half and whether or not something met expectations, I didn't see the offense being it's basic it's basically if you're talking about like fantasy baseball and one of the roster construction strategies is stars and scrubs. Right. Like, do you spend a lot of money on really, really high end guys and then just try to fill in the backside as much as possible? And that's ultimately what the Brewers have been. And I didn't see Manny Pena, uh, Orlando Arcia, Domingo Santana, all of those those guys just completely implode. And a lot of guys, Chris Yelich has been, you know, as good as we expected Lorenzo Cain's been as good as we expected. Jesus Aguilar's obviously been better than we expected. And we expected to have high-end bats at the at the top, but we were expecting a bottom half that could at least be competent, and they haven't been. So it's been a little bit of an inconsistent offense, but they're still an average offense in, in Major League Baseball. And so while it maybe has been a little bit more inconsistent than people would like because it relies on a certain amount of people in terms of its effectiveness. It's actually turned out to be pretty good or at least average, right? Like I guess maybe that's not pretty good, but it's at least not a debilitating problem. And so if in order to get better, you don't need to go and get superstars. You need to be able to go and lengthen the lineup with people that are actually serviceable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why I know you've been pushing Jed Lowry, but the A's, still seem to be in it so yeah I, I think it was like the world cup happened and i just like didn't understand what was happening with baseball and then somebody pointed out that they're really good and i didn't understand how that happened and then they were i think 12 games over 500 or something in in june yeah and it was like the world cup vortex happened and i had no idea what happened yeah so that might be a little bit more of a difficult acquisition to make Right, but they there have been talks that the Brewers are uh, discussing um, some players with the Twins. So the whole and we've actually had some questions about it in the past. But Eduardo Escobar is, is kind of the guy that makes a lot of sense from the Twins that could be coming on over. Um, Manny Machado, those discussions won't go away. But I think that they are going to try to obviously in, improve the the middle of the lineup yeah. or the middle of the infield. 
Um, so the rotation has been, I, I described it as serviceable. I don't know if you guys agree with that assessment. I think that's a very good word for it. You know, they, they prevent runs at a very, what, league average rate? Yeah. Yeah, and they, they were about 13th in MLB. Yeah. And they've actually done a surprisingly good job of racking up quality starts. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that they're able to eat the innings they need to. Um, Craig Council manages it in a way that they don't get pushed beyond what their limit is. Yeah, I mean, there's still there's still that question of because they don't have an ace, because they don't have that guy, does that create some sort of a larger problem in terms of eating innings, in terms of having that guy to stop a, a losing streak, something like that? I don't know. I mean, I'm looking at it. You have eight guys who have made three or more starts for the Brewers this year, and their ERAs are clustered between uh, Freddie Peralta at 2.65, or I guess uh, Wade Miley's made three and 2.38, but hey, don't really Don't count Miley. He hasn't yeah, I mean, it's it's really only two starts because he left so early from the, the second one. Um, but you have ERAs ranging between 2.65 and I guess... You know, Zach Davies is 5.23, but really he's kind of an outlier, and that seems high anyway. So really, it's like Brent Suter at, at 4.53. You have a bunch of third starters, but you don't just have five of them. You have like seven, eight of them. That might be a little generous. It's maybe a little bit generous, but they're, the point is is that they have a lot of guys who are who are capable of turning in performances, and that doesn't even include guys we've seen like Corbin Burns who's come up. Or Adrian Hauser, well, guys Burns, that we think could potentially be. But Burns seems like he's going to be in the bullpen for now. Yeah, but guys who could potentially should a need arise do that as well. But all those guys, I mean, are, are any of those guys or Burns, Hauser, anybody like that? Are they an answer for the Brewers possibly in the second half, or are there just enough arms right now that it's not really an issue? Yeah, I think it's I think it's the latter. I think they've been able to produce via depth. It's something that I actually didn't expect to work um, or maybe just valued incorrectly coming into the season, understanding how much depth that they were going to be able to throw in. And I will say this about the innings. I just had to look it up because I actually didn't. I didn't think that this was as much of an issue as everybody has been putting on. And in the NL, they're bang average. They're they're eighth out of. 15 teams in terms of uh, innings pitch by starting pitchers. That's more than the Mets, more than the Dodgers, more than the Cubs, more than the Braves, more than the Padres. More than the and Cubs? That's more impossible. Than the, more than the Cubs by 13 innings. I guess and they've also they've also played six more, five, four more games. Well, if this yeah. is an oh, average. That's fair. Okay. No, that's a fair point. No, that's a fair point. Um, but it's I think a lot of people missed how many innings starters were putting in at the end of June. They were they did regularly go on a run. going through. Yeah. They were regularly going through a lot of innings. And, and then a lot of people actually started to say, well, why isn't Council actually pulling some of these people earlier? Why is he letting them go through six innings, through seven innings? And letting them and, maybe get into some trouble in the, in the sixth and seventh innings? Right. And so it becomes a, it becomes a situation, basically, Council just gets blamed for whatever doesn't work. I was going to say, is, is there some inning that we don't know exists that a pitcher should pitch to? Like between yeah, the, whatever the inning the seventh, he or? is going to not give up runs. No, it's it's what it's whatever you know allows the team to win. 
Right. We have some like imaginary like inning that exists. Like this is where you take them out. Yes, it's like, the infinity. It's the yeah, it's, on the yeah. side. <laughs> the infinity it, inning. <laughs> it was it was pretty clear actually what I think Council was doing early in the early in the season. It was basically as soon as they got to the, I think through the fifth, but it sometimes was in the fifth. Any time a starter got to the third time through the order and he allowed a base runner, he was out. Yeah, yeah, and, you could see a real quick hook. Like, th- yeah, that guy would get on and he would be up. Off the yeah. top step and out head into the mouth. And if he didn't allow a base runner, he was allowed to basically go. But you have seen as the season has gone on that that hook has changed a lot. Um, and that's not to say Council is is willing is not willing to go to the bullpen early. He absolutely is, but he is willing to let guys uh, battle. Th- through a little bit more um is not that, significantly is that partially to manage you know early on you're kind of ma- managing the workload for your rotation was he trying to manage the workload for the bullpen at that point because they you know they'd been used pretty good through april may into june yeah it could it, potentially um i think much more likely as a starting pitcher, you want to be able to be trusted to get out of your own jams. I think it's a very difficult spot to pitch very well for five innings. And then as soon as you give up a base runner, your your manager comes out and says, you can't get out of this. I'm going to go to somebody else. And I I do think that uh, some of the guys, especially... You know, I think he he really started to show this with Shasin. He started to show it with with Guerra, and he started to show it with Suter, guys who had actually been guy. They had been the pitchers in June who had pitched the best. He was willing to allow them a little bit more slack to get out of their own jams. The other thing that started happening was the offense got really hot, and he was absolutely willing to let Brent Suter or 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 Chassin go seven innings if their pitch count was well and they were winning by enough that, you know what, if they gave up an extra run or two in the sixth inning, the seventh inning, it didn't really matter that much. Well, and the other thing I wonder about that is, what about the reverse of it? Was this potentially a strategy, not just by council, but by the organization as a whole, to protect arms early in the season, to keep them fresh and to keep them healthy when you're just getting into the swing of a season is it because we see every year that the spate of in arm injuries that seem to crop up in first and spring training and then early in the season. And it tends to be there tend to be less of them as the season goes on. Guys kind of get that. So is this a case of them doing that? I don't know. I'm, I'm purely speculating, but it, it's a thought. Yeah. So we got a great bullpen uh, performance early in the season. You know, they, they've won a lot of close games and I, I think to win, the number they have, that's how you kind of, you know, go into the break 12 plus. But again, they're not the Mariners. The Mariners are out there really working that angle where they're winning. I mean, I'm looking at the, the results right now. You could see they're they're winning a, a lot of games. They're winning games close, but they're also winning a lot of games by fairly sizable margin. Well, so. sure. I think, it's, I think it's actually there's a there was a stat that I saw that the Seattle Mariners have won more one run games than the Orioles have won games on the season. <laughs> I mean, well, they're, the Mariners are I'm doing not, something ridiculous. Okay, hold on. In yes, they're not all one run games because the Brewers' offense is not bad. No, and they the can put up runs. Can be really good. Yeah, to, so where they can win four nothing or something. And, you know, they had a run where they were putting up you know six plus runs a game. 
Sure. You know, so that that happens. But when they get into those close games, they've been successful because really good bullpen uh, pitching allows you to win close games late. So um, how do we manage our expectations, JP, for the second half for this bullpen? Because they can swing from fantastic to looking like they can't get, you know, anyone out so quickly. Like, I guess what's, what's the ebb and flow we should maybe expect as the season goes on. It depends on how much the organization is willing to continuously cycle through guys in triple a, because I think while that depth has been extremely important, what I think you have started to see is, is the fact that guys aren't actually able to get comfortable. And I don't think that that's a lot because of what the organization has done in, in terms of uh, kind of ditching guys as quickly as possible. They are in a stretch right now where they need a lot of arms because they're playing so many games. But injuries have just caused so much issue. And guys needing to go on the DL and a lot of position players that need go out of the DL. So then they go and bring in a pitcher who, who can step in for a few innings, you know, Alec Asher, Adrian Hauser, uh, you know, Jorge Lopez, all of these people that they need just innings to get through because they pitch so many, but then they need a bat. And so they send them out right away. And it's really difficult for these fringe bullpen guys to be able to get comfortable to, to produce. Um, so if they keep doing that, you might see those fringe guys continue to struggle. What I'm a little bit more concerned about is what you saw from Josh Hader against uh, the Marlins. Not just because he struggled, but it's been something we've talked about kind of on the fringes because nobody really wants to talk about Josh Hader as if he's not doing something well. He can't throw his slider for strikes right now, uh, pretty much at all. He can get lefties to swing at it, but he's not throwing it for strikes. And the uh, the Marlins were up there, and they were hunting fastballs, and they were hunting high fastballs. And the Marlins are and not a power hitting team. I, I was it during the series. I was listening to one of the games. home run. I was listening to one of the games on the radio, and I think uh, I don't know if it was Grindle or Levering pointed out. I'm it pretty is hard sure to tell. I'm, it was. I'm pretty. I'm trying to remember exactly where I heard it. They pointed out that they had a, a game where they had like 22 hits, and they only had like or 22 hits in a game and 20 singles. Yeah, it's very Marlinsy. That's what the Marlins do. They like lead the league in like singles, basically, and they're not like some fantastic hitting team. That's just all they hit. So to right. see Hater well, give up back to back home runs like that. Right to but, the Marlins I mean, they, was but a surprise. The guys that he gave up to were like the only power hitters they have. Sure, but I so it's a fair point that the Marlins, the fact that it happened against the Marlins was a little bit more jarring. But you could see in the last three or four outings that he that he has had, every single hitter is going up, gearing up for a high fastball. No matter how hard you're throwing, no matter how deceptive you are. If big league hitters know exactly what pitch you're going to throw and they know exactly what part of the zone you're going to throw it in, they're going to accidentally run into some. And is, is does he need to change the level on that fastball at all? I mean, because his fastball is all run up pretty high. I mean, does he have the ability, even if he's not locating that slider, to like cut a fastball low and in on a guy or something to that effect that at least can change up the look? 
Maybe. I, I think it would be something to play with. I think it's a larger issue of um, Josh Hader not really uh, commanding the strike zone very well. I, I don't think he can really pick out where he's throwing his fastball. Is is that just a fatigue issue possibly right now? It could be. It's something that's been an issue for him for the last like two or three years. So. Yeah, I was going to say it's, that's it's not kind of, this is not kind new. of just a feature. No. Yeah. Now, I was I was kind of poking around and I, I did see his uh, DRA on baseball prospectus. I think it was still at like a buck sixty seven, which is right <laughs> oh, around yeah. what his ERA is. So, I mean, yeah. even though he's had some shaky outings overall, I mean, I don't think there's any like indicators that we should just like his, expect his performance to completely fall off. No, no, no. You're exactly right. Um, but my my thought was if you're relying on the bullpen to be completely locked down all the time and some and myself you know i think we just we all just got used to the fact that when josh Hader came in he was going to be dynamite for two two innings and you just put zeros on the books and it was easy um and the fact that he's actually given up some hits and a couple of home runs recently has been a little bit galling we have we heard anything about why they went out to check on him and why council thought he was injured? Because I, I was poking around and I haven't seen anything on it. Uh, yeah, I didn't see. I remember the the visit or whatever out to the mound and they were, I don't know, somewhat worried. I, that was all confusing. I, I mean, yeah, it was council actually yelled at Hater to stop, like to, to wait. And then they went out to go talk to him. And I couldn't figure out if that was like, and and like council was, council was yelling at him to, to step off. We haven't seen him since then, have we? Since that uh, first night in well, Miami? Well, no, but we also haven't won. Yeah, so. there haven't been any situations <laughs> to bring him in, and you have a guy that could probably use some rest. I, We're I'm not sure. going to bring him in today, if they're, though, in the double, team's down In for. a doubleheader, he'll probably go today. Yeah, if he doesn't show up on Saturday, then I'd say there's probably more of an issue, and we should probably not expect him to pitch in the All-Star game. Potentially be an injury replacement. Yeah, if he can't pitch on it, when there's a doubleheader and a game the next day. Yeah, I. Yeah. So I mean, it'll be, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, the other thing to remember, you know, uh, if a guy's got a buck and a half ERA, that's fantastic. But it means he has given up runs before, and if you're always coming in with a a slim margin, any runs are going to be jarring when they happen. Well, and the other thing to kind of build on this point about the bullpen for the second half. I've, I've mentioned this before. It's not like they don't have other guys that are credible bullpen options behind Hader, Jeffress, and Knable. We have Matt Albers presumably returning sometime soon. Uh, Taylor Williams has been really, really good. After a little bit of a bumpy start, you know, he has really commanded the strike zone. And he's always had the stuff. Like, right. this the, is the not the a surprise is, that he can come in and be electric. No, the stuff is, is stud stuff. So you have that. You have potentially Corbin Burns, who looked pretty good first time out. Are they, have, he looks really good. Are they yeah. bringing Burns in to be a a right-handed Josh Hader, possibly? Man, if if he's going to throw 96 miles an hour with that kind of curveball, or with that slider, I'm not saying, I don't think it's fair to say that anybody is going to be no. Josh Hader, but I think that they're well, looking hold on. at him to come in and be a good pitcher. I mean, Don't Josh, count people to Barry Bonds. Josh, well, Josh Hader's been unreal this season, but he was very good last season for them. And to bring that yeah. up, you know, mid-season last year was a boost to the bullpen. I mean, yeah, if, you're Burns, exactly right. if Burns can just be that, yes. Yeah, you're exactly right. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that works out. Do you think Burns is up now? For yes. the duration, unless unless he is going to be traded, 
I think he is up. I mean, I've, I would yeah, be let's... surprised if he didn't at least go down at some point when they needed to keep shuffling the bullpen. Because they, they have to shuffle that back into the bullpen. But, man, but is he going to be the back? But you can you can shuffle. Like, they're going to shuffle Jacob Barnes before they shuffle Corbin Burns. I was going to say, is Burns go- if Burns has a handful of really strong outings, is he going to be the back of that, the bullpen? Maybe he, yeah, maybe he does move up the pecking order. Maybe Barnes does move down. If he continues to just be confounding, to borrow Jerry Eldred's phrase. Like that, there you go. He, who, he's been confounding. Okay, I, and I'm kind of skipping around. Who could Burns possibly get traded for? Do you? Th- I mean, I know his name's been in the Machado uh, rumors, but as far as and we it know, doesn't seem like the Brewers want to give him up. For no, Manny I Machado. think the only way that happens is if it's Machado plus, and then that brings in potentially like a Zach Britton discussion if that even works i don't know if but who is the orioles would be much smarter and better off to piece those guys out separately sure but But who else they're all they're all rentals who who else could burns possibly go for that would be a legit return not like an overpay you know because i don't think rentals obviously manny machado's head and shoulders above everybody else and the brewers aren't willing to do a rental for that price yeah, I think you could see him getting a conversation with the wet Mary Fields of the world. Um, like, not necessarily, I'm just using him because he's been an example, but somebody who could come in who's been a two and a half, three win player and is controllable. Um, I think you'll absolutely see him in those kinds of discussions. I don't necessarily think that Whit Merrifield makes a lot of sense for the team right now. Um, obviously, for this year, he would, but. Next year, then you've got Kesson Hira knocking on the door, and then suddenly, what are you doing with Whit Merrifield? Um, Whit Merrifield's not going to be playing shortstop. So I don't necessarily know if a long-term option at second base is going to be exactly what the team is looking for, but any kind of controllable asset, you'll see it. Okay. So Dozier sounds more realistic in that way. Okay, so I'm going to call an audible here. Um, we were going to go through our first half awards. I'm going to push that because we got a lot of questions. Oh, good. Good let's, call. Let's, we're gonna we're gonna do that one coming out of the All Star break since we're gonna need something to talk about that week because I don't think we want to spend our oh, time. Man, we're gonna are we recording in person next week? We are. Oh, yeah. that's right. That is right. Yes. Well, so everybody has to pay attention for we're gonna announce it as the week goes on, but we're gonna meet up before the game on Saturday. Yes. Yeah, we'll all be there on the twenty first. So uh, plan on that if you're looking to go to a Brewers that would be game. Saturday, a six oh five start versus the Dodgers. Exactly. So, um, but we have a Patreon question from Scott Moling. He asks if we got Machado, a combination of Saladino, Miller, VR at second base would be pretty good. But what would your middle infield strategy be if we don't get another shortstop? Does Saladino get a shot to hold down the position for the rest of the year? Would Hira, assuming he can get healthy and start hitting again, be considered for a call-up to try to boost the offensive production at second base? What would your preferred strategy be with or without Machado? I'd be surprised if they don't add another middle infielder, to be quite honest. The way things have gone, Saladino has been serviceable, and I think can play a role on the team but i'd be surprised if they didn't add at second base slash shortstop before the deadline so i don't think that's going to happen i don't think they'll just go in with what they have um outside of perhaps maybe and this was something that has been bandied about around a little bit the idea of keston hero being called up and 
thrown into the the lineup as a potential upgrade. JP Keston Hira being called up is that really a possibility? I don't see it. That doesn't mean it can't happen. I just I I don't, especially with the fact that he was just he was just down with a little bit. I, he had some kind of injury. I don't remember what it was. Um, I think he's the kind of bat that could come up and be productive, but man, calling up somebody and expecting them to be able to come in and not need any kind of lead time and suddenly be the answer you're looking for second base is just asking so much. I just don't think that's something that makes a lot of sense. Well, how much of this is the the baseball prospectus midseason top 50 came out mm-hmm. for uh, prospects and Heroes rated fifth overall on there. And it was I don't know, JP, had you seen the list? of him being called up. Yeah, I did, see, I did see. I did. I did see the list. And also, speaking of baseball prospectus, uh, for people that did uh, not have a chance to listen yet or don't subscribe to the Patreon, we had uh, Craig Goldstein on the Minor League Pod, uh, who is the Minor League editor of Baseball Prospectus. He talked a little bit about Kesson Hira. Talked a lot about kind of their process, um, and kind of gave us some helpful hits uh, hints for the for the listeners about like how you kind of get into scouting, how you do the box score thing. Um, so if you do want to hear more about Kesson Hero, you want to hear more about what BP is doing behind the scenes. Um, you can visit our Patreon to get that in the, in the back catalog. I think it was a really good, what, what did we have? 45 minute interview, something like that. Yeah. It was just it was about, about 45 that. minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but overall you think Hira is a long shot to uh, get the call. And also if he does, it's probably a bad idea to rest your hopes on a rookie that you've rushed to the major leagues. Yeah, I think his back could handle it. Um, I don't think he would, for example, I don't think he would need the same kind of uh, adjustment time that somebody like Lewis Brinson is needing right now with the, with the Marlins. And the fact that, I, is he called down or is he just not playing? I think he, he had to get sent down. Brinson was, has been down. More. Oh, he's on the DL. Princeton's on the okay. DL. <laughs> okay. So it's I think he would be he would be able to make that transition uh better, but there we just we don't know what's happening. And then if if Kesson here is not going to be a good defensive uh second baseman because he hasn't had a lot of time there, everyone is gonna complain about that. It's just a really difficult situation to bring somebody up, have everyone say that this is the savior coming in at second base and everybody is going to be great. Imagine what his like Nate Orf got carried out on people's shoulders because he was supposed to be the guy at second base that was going to come in. Imagine what everybody would that was a little much somebody like Kessinger. That was a little much. So um, if there are no injuries, do you think we see Arcia and or Santana before September? Neither guy seems to be doing much since their demotion to Colorado Springs. And that's from Jason Donlinger. A- another Patreon question, I should say. No, no, I don't. Oh, you flat out don't expect it. I, I suppose with the caveat of aside from injuries, which I mean, <laughs> there are a lot of those these days. Yeah, so. I'm I mean. At what point they have said again and again that uh, Orlando Arcia needs time down there to sort himself out. They're not going to bring him up just because all of a sudden he has a good week of performances. But Arcia is a little bit younger. I mean, is there a little more urgency for uh, Santana if he starts to hit and just getting him back and getting those major league at bats again? 
I guess, but then you're going after the after the All Star break. You're then going to still have Eric Thames, who's going to need to come back and and get playing time. Eric Thames, by the way, before he got injured, was hitting the ball very well for about a week and a half, um, and was uh, not, if not carrying the offense, because I still think that goes to Jesus Aguilar. He was being one of the only productive members of the offense for a good couple of weeks. Um, he still needs to find time. You're still going to expect Ryan Braun to come back and need time. And unless Domingo Santana is absolutely blistering the ball, it doesn't make any sense for him to come back until September in my mind. I mean, let's be clear about this. Eric Thames in the first half was the second best hitter on the Brewers on an at-bat basis, like production-wise. I'm not talking about how well, like how good a hitter he is, you know. Production-wise, he was the second best hitter on this team in the first half at bat for at bat. So like you have to make, that's why he's been playing out in right field is because Andy's you have to make room off. for him. Andy and, had been leading and he's off. been leading off. Yeah. And I mean, I think part of that is they're managing Kane. They're managing Yelich. I mean, have they, do you think they've gotten away from the Kane Yelich one, two uh, in the lineup a little too much? Are they being a little cute right now when they were trying to use Thames up there? I don't think so. I think Thames is going to give you the best uh, on-base percentage options up at the top of the uh, the lineup right now. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Just I mean, because... all three of them do. Well, I mean, Kane has an on-base percentage that's a little bit higher, but you know, that's. I always feel like Kane's is a little more dependent on whether or not he's hitting. Kane's that's, is dependent on whether or not that's, he's hitting. That's my impression. Where Thames, I always feel like if he if he goes in the tank, or you feel like he can't put the ball in play he still has the ability to draw walks he's got a little bit of ricky weeks uh style to him there yeah i think he's that, a run scorer is what you're trying to say exactly yeah i think that maybe leads to some of the uh angst you see about him which is something that drives me nuts i think eric eric thames is too muscular people, to be angsty about do, him i was gonna say do people not like eric thames yeah there's there's a low-key angst about him i i saw a it wasn't just Ryan, one person. It was Ryan, three or four people, people were complaining. Those people can go pound sand. Complaining Ryan, about uh, complaining about him being in the leadoff spot. That oh, this this you know this needs to end. I, I've heard some of that stuff. Ryan yeah. spends a lot of time on the dark web. That's where he finds <laughs> this stuff. For us normal Man, stay, folks, just stay off of the Brewers version of 4chan. Yeah. <laughs> it's just Twitter. It's Molitor 4chan. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's see. If the Brewers were interested in Brian Dozier or Eduardo Escobar in a trade with the Twins, what kind of package would it take to make it happen? And that's from Patreon patron Jason, what was it? Halbuslaven. Halbuslaven. So that's the one where I draw the hard line and say, you are not getting, for those two guys, you are not getting their top four prospects you are not getting so that would it would eliminate Hira it would eliminate Burns it would eliminate Peralta and would eliminate Ray boom that's it no discussion they, yeah they, I don't even I don't even consider that for wait are you you're, oh wait hold on you're considering Peralta a prospect that would be potentially tradable I mean he's a prospect I'm he just saying not JP the would, yet and would, I think that in the right deal they could move him JP, if it involved a starting there, pitcher, if it involved a starting pitcher, I could see Peralta getting. Is there a legit scenario where they would possibly trade Peralta? Sure. I mean, I don't necessarily know who it would be for off the top whom. Of my head. 
I don't know. DeGrom. I don't know. I don't necessarily I don't necessarily know who's who is all available. Would would you include Peralta in a package of four DeGrom where you get him for two and a half seasons? Yes. Okay. I mean, yeah, you'd have to. You'd have to include him and Burns or No, I get that. I'm just I'm I'm just curious since it's been so hard to get guys to come up through the system and have a little bit more success than, you know, trying to break into the back of a bullpen that I'd be surprised that the Brewers are willing to let go that potential and control that they have. Yeah. But to, to hunt They've that got kind so of big game of it though, they've got so much of it. They do. I don't trust any of it. <laughs> you, don't you, tr- you trust nothing. <laughs> I don't trust any of it. I won't. I've been let down too many times. I was going to say, you're like, you're, like all, you're like all of the people that are waiting for this this co- second half collapse to happen, but it's like with pitchers where yeah. you're just like, I, I've been hurt so many times. It just can't happen. I remember Juan Nieves. Our buddy, 2007, 2009, 2014, 2017, exactly. that guy. <laughs> exactly. We've, we've spent, it's not even, you know, talking about the entire history of the Brewers, just talking about the past decade of the Brewers and what they've done to pitchers, I, you know. It seems like if you bring somebody up and they got some success, I don't want to see him go. But, no, I get it. I get it. So, um, Sean Andrews on Patreon asks, obviously the bullpen has been a team strength so far, but Hader has a 442 FIP over the past 30 days. Canable's control comes and goes, and Jeffress's amazingness can't last forever. And he says there's a, a 1.8 difference in his ERA and FIP. So, looking to the second half, what is a realist, what's realistic to ex- expect from the pen? We'll get through this. Um, I mean, I think we already did. <laughs> we, we did a little bit. Um, well, I have some specific but we, to say. We, we talked more specifically about Hater. So I guess, uh, yeah. you know, what do we, we expect from, you know, Corey Knable and Jeremy Jeffress, I think, is the other, you know, two top-end bullpen arms that they have yeah. in the second half. I'll, I'll, a couple of pieces on this really quickly. Um, number one, try to use uh, – a, a FIP is is nice because it's kind of open and everybody knows exactly what it is. DRA is a little bit better. I know you can't necessarily piece that out over the last 30 days, um, but it gives us a better idea and it shows to be much more consistent over, you know, for predicting future performance than FIP does. Um, but I think one of the things that we've seen again and again, the vast majority of uh, kind of FIP damage has come from walks. And the... Brewers right now have the best defense statistically, have the best defense in all of Major League Baseball. And you should expect, especially guys like like Jeffries, you should expect guys like Hayter, you should expect guys like uh, Knable that uh, rely on a lot of strikeouts. And when they do put the ball in play, especially with Jeffries, it gets on the ground. Um, and with the with Hayter, when he's going to give up a lot of weak contact in the air, they've got the best outfield defense in all of major league baseball to go and get it, especially when Kane is healthy and they've started to play a little bit with being able to put Brox in the right field. Um, I think you should expect this team to be able to outperform its fit. It's, it's absolutely geared for and been a plan of this organization to be able to create the scenario in which the pitchers can outperform their well and we talked about that coming into the season when they went out and got Kane and Yelich and put together that team that this team had the potential to be very good defensively and they've absolutely excellent absolutely mostly carried by the outfield like JP's talking about well they've they did what they did is they went out and they learned from the Royals that's exactly what the Royals did back in what 2015 
mm-hmm. 14 and 15, yeah. And it's it's what they've been able to do is they have said not only are they calling it like outgetters, but they look at run prevention. How do you prevent runs? You do it by shifting. You do it by being able to maximize your outfield coverage, by being able to make sure you have quality outfielders. You do that via pitch framing, which is one of the reasons they love Manny Pena and why they've been able to consistently invest in minor league catching because they know how important catching is. And they want to make sure that they have the defensive flexibility that they can continue to mix and match with this sort of thing. And that's why they're starting to pitch up in the zone because they know that uh, not only do you miss a lot of bats there, but you actually get a lot of really weak contact high in the zone. We've started to go past this idea that uh, the only kind of contact you want is ground balls. What you want is weak contact, and that's actually been shown again and again to be high up in the zone. With guys like Peralta, with Hayter, with Knabel, with Chassin, they are starting to tell them pitch high in the zone because you're going to get weaker contact. When Chassin was told that coming in, I mean, and this is a thing going on all over baseball, and some of this is related to, one, people's understanding of spin rates and the fact that pitching up high in the zone with a high spin rate, especially on your fastball, works. Like, that is a path to success. The other thing that's been driving this is what hitters have been doing hitters have started to adjust their swings to be more uppercutty and so the the old line used to be you didn't want to leave it high because hitters were going to drive those pitches well now with swings being more tailored to be uppercut swings the danger zones are more so at the bottom of the strike zone this isn't a hard and fast rule, but the, say, the d- tendency, depending on what you're throwing, but yeah, but yes, but the tendency has been that direction, and, and hitters are adjusting to try to create that. Everybody with the fly ball want, revolution. Everybody wants to hit the the every, home run. Everybody wanted to be a lefty. That's what it is, because <laughs> lefties are just superior hitters to hey, righties. Hey, 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 Steve, what what side of the plate did you swing from? The correct side of the plate. Yeah. So, um, anyways. Uh, last question here, uh, Patreon question from Darren Jones. What aspects of the MLB All-Star Week do you look forward to? Uh, choices include the Futures game, Celebrity Softball game, Home Run Derby, the actual All-Star game, or something else entirely? Um, I'm actually, so I was thinking about this a little bit just before we started. I think I've watched more Home Run Derbies than I have All-Star games. Over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years or whatever. Like, I feel like I've seen more of the home run derby than the game itself. And I think some of it might just be a fluke. Like, I've had things going on on Tuesdays that I didn't on Mondays. But, like, I feel like I've watched just about every home run derby, like, start to finish. And I only have fleeting memories of the the all-star games themselves. Like, I could, I could tell you where I was watching the home run derby that uh, Josh Hamilton went nuts in. It's at my in-law's place. And I, I couldn't tell you anything. What about the about one where ones. Robinson Cano went nuts? Or the Josh Hamilton one? Bobby Abreu. Bobby Abreu went Bobby nuts. Abreu one. Or yeah. I think Barry Bonds went nuts. Like, shockingly. <laughs> no, that was just, no, that was just an entire season. <laughs> that, was, that was the 2001 season, Steve. Yeah, no, I mean, I, Frank I Thomas? think I've Frank seen, Thomas went nuts. I think I've seen more home run derbies, honestly. So, like... And it's not because I like it more. In fact, I probably like it less. But. I think it's the one thing that's nice about the home run derby. I mean, it's not like the the all star game is actually a game you got to sit there and like in, intensely watch. But the home run derby very much can be on in the background. Yes, it, and if somebody's is. and if somebody's just going, you know, ape shit out there, 
you turn around and you watch for a little bit. And you can pop on some music or so. You don't even have to listen to get the repeated oh, well, back, back, to, back, 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 back. Yeah, I was going to say, you used to have to put on something else. So, JP, is there anything that you look forward to? Uh, no. I, I actually do not Ex- watch any of it. Extra time to read? Yeah, I don't watch. I do not watch any of it. Um, yeah, you should like try to cram in three books a day over the next week. <laughs> it's not even a joke. Um, I got my Netflix uh, queue all just geared up for this week. My brain is bleeding. Um, I, I. <laughs> That's not good. This is something that I think they've tried to be <laughs> able to, to figure it at. out. Yeah, but um, this is something they've tried to figure out, but. What I would watch, aside from the non-baseball skills competition, which, by the way, still would be all over that, um, would be having the draft during the All-Star break. So, I mean, we should talk about that a little bit because obviously the reason that it doesn't happen is because of the then you would be drafting that much later and the short season teams rely on well they just finally really finished drafted teams and they just Certainly. finally finished getting everybody signed within the last week or two right i mean those no, you're, teams you're exactly right those teams start earlier and with you know the initial signings but if you were you weren't having the draft until that point i don't know what they would do with those seasons i don't know what you would do with with short season ball and with rookie ball like you could also move the all-star week you could but then you're the problem would you move it more than a week up no, probably not. MLB doesn't. Look, I'm not they don't want to. MLB and they don't, doesn't want to interfere with any, or doesn't want to deal with any sort of competing with. They don't um, want to compete with Summerfest. Well, they don't want to compete with Fourth of July weekend. They don't want to compete with the NBA Finals, and they sure. don't want to compete with the NBA Draft. Like, but they don't have a problem competing with their own games. No, they're fine with that. Yeah, they don't do it very well. I'm no. I'm, well, no, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. The All Star Game. We're talking about the, you said move the All Star game. Oh, they don't I wanna, see what you're saying. Right? They can't. They don't want to. They don't want to move the All Star game, which is their summer showcase and their big, yeah, yeah. their big thing in the regular season. You know, they they don't. You're they're right. not going to move that. You know, during the NBA Finals or something that just it would disappear. No, you're right. You're right. Yeah. So I, you know, I will say that I do enjoy just turning the game on right at the beginning. All the players coming out, everybody who's announced. And you just, like the red carpet thing, don't you? I just want to see who the who who made it. What are you What are you wearing tonight? I do want to see. I I, I uh, get all my fashion magazines out and try to identify uh, who's, who's got the Louis Vuitton. Yeah, who's who the designers are walking into the stadium, stuff like that. No, <laughs> I remember when they really tried to play that up. They they did like a parade and they did a like a red carpet and they really. But I enjoy I enjoy thing. the teams lined up on the first baseline, third baseline. Everybody kind of getting to tip their cap and see who's there. Well, especially when it's young players that you yeah. haven't seen before. I I could tell you we watched the 2007 one that had J.J. Hardy and Prince Fielder, and that was a super big deal. Those two mm-hmm. guys, your homegrown players, like that was, a, I think it was in San Francisco. That was a huge deal. Like that really was like a, I, a confirmation the Brewers had like made it again. Yeah. And, you know, I, I know there's an argument that you want to see, like, the guys who are established stars every season. And for the most part, they get in. But it is good to see, like, a Jesus Aguilar who's just had a great first half. And those guys exist, and they get acknowledged, and it's fun to see that. And that's it should lean towards the long-term stars with enough of the mixing in of the, you know, the potentially, you know, well, guys the who idea might not is, qualify again. Well, yeah, the well, idea is... Yeah, Brian LaHare. <laughs> Did he win a fan vote? That had to be a fan vote. 
No, it wasn't a fan vote. He no, just he, got in because he was a Cub. Oh, I guess because you're a Cub, you just and he had a Andy had a phenomenal first half of the season. I mean, he really did. I don't care. I don't care. That shouldn't be included. <laughs> so, um, anyways, okay. So what we're gonna do? Uh, we're gonna take a quick break, and we're gonna come back with our interview with uh, Ryan Koga from Carbon Four Brewing. Okay, so we got Ryan and Steve here. We're here with uh, Ryan Koga, the brewmaster. Brewmaster. Brewmaster for Carbon 4. How are you doing? Excellent. How are yeah. you doing, guys, this, this morning? How was the drive over? It was good. It yeah, was, pretty clear. Yeah. No rain? It's, it's a Saturday morning, and it wasn't raining, so it wasn't too bad. So Good. Um, yeah, Saturday morning. What are you doing here on a Saturday morning? Um, had the, the first brew shift today, which starts at 4 in the morning, although I didn't get here till. 405, 410, so. <laughs> you got the but title, my, so you can my, do that, but right? Well, uh, yeah, well, no, you can't. <laughs> you can't. In the end, that's a, sometimes my, people make comments, sometimes they're like, well, you're the owner, can't, you, can, you can do that. I'm like, well, technically, like, yeah, I'm not going to get fired, but when you are leading, then when everyone looks at you, you're like, yeah, okay, I'm an asshole, so, you know, I'm the jerk, so, you know. Well, how do you become a brewmaster? Like, how did that start out? So we know, I think Zach, when he was on, mm-hmm. told us you started out in, was it Montana? Correct. Okay. Yeah, I was in Billings, Montana. I lived there for eight years. Um, met my wife out there, actually. She's from Michigan. Um, but I uh, met her out there. Uh, but I went out to, to Montana. went to Billings for graduate school um, in, actually, in athletic training, sports medicine. That was 2004. And... Um, uh, by the end of, uh, well, by 2006, my last year of grad school, a friend of mine, um, Dave, uh, who became one of my best friends, he, he was in the, a year behind me in the same program, and he got a summer job working at a local brewery there, Yellowstone Valley Brewing Company. And um, during the summertime, uh, they had one of the other uh, guys that just needed some extra help on the bottling line. One day, my buddy knew I'd was looking for some extra work and uh so he called me up and uh i went there and kind of like the rest is history <laughs> a lot of a lot of details i guess in between but that's really where it started because i really wasn't a craft beer fan um i didn't drink really didn't really drink in college you know i mean i certainly got drunk a handful of times you know i had a good time here and there partying but i like i wasn't a lot i i it's like two beers in or two drinks and i'm more i'm like already getting loopy i can't handle it so my my brother, who was on the podcast before, he, you wouldn't even know he was getting drunk. He'd just, he can just keep going, going, going. I can't. I just can't handle it. So I didn't have a lot of beer. I wasn't really into craft beer. I, just, I mean, I just didn't know. And uh, so that's really where I learned about it while I was working with it. I thought it'd be kind of fun to be in, the, in a brewery. And then, uh, so what, I, what drew you to it then? Like learning how to actually brew if there wasn't like kind of that background, like, oh, I just like to mm-hmm. go out and drink. Because a lot of yeah. people, you know, you see like, oh, they were big into home brewing and yeah, stuff. Yeah, I've like actually that never homebrewed. Okay. To this day, we have a pilot system now. You know, and we've done stuff on. We do a lot of stuff on the pilot system. I personally, I don't even know if I've done a batch on it myself. Like I just kind of let all the team just do whatever they want to do. I mean, I've given them recipes to do here and there, but um, kind of, I just kind of like to get out of their way. Uh, but um, once I was at the brewery. You know, I thought in concept, like, oh, brewery, that'd be kind of cool, you know? And I went there, and then actually being in the thick of it, that's when I just kind of fell in love with everything around me. I'd, I'd worked maintenance at a printing plant in college. I'd worked 
I mean, I worked at like Ponderosa in high school. I've changed oil. I've done construction. I used to work in a, and I did like worked in a truss shop. Um, I worked in laser tag. I mean, I've done like everything, you know, like I've done a lot of stuff. And um, so you, you could have you, you learned how to build lasers instead of root beer. Exactly. But. I probably, I probably should have in the <laughs> I should have been putting sharks, sharks <laughs> laser with freaking laser beams on their head. Um, yeah, so when I was there, it, like the process, I so in college too. When I was I was pre med in undergrad, but it turns out three doesn't get you into med school or PT school, <laughs> dental school, kind but of so anything. So you have the chemistry background, then. Yeah, so I had a chemistry degree along with my my human biology degree and stuff. But um, it wasn't that I like couldn't get A's or was dumb. I just, I have a photographic memory and I too often relied upon it. Like reading, I went to all the lectures. I didn't skip around and screw around it, but I would just like be, I could be able to read the notes, my notes in my head, in my closing my eyes. So when I was test taking, it was more memory, memory recall than it was, you know, cognition or our um, comprehension of the material. And, uh, so I ended up with a 3.0 and uh, ended up going to, but I did some athletic training, did some sports medicine when I was in my last year or two. I was a college athlete and stuff too. So um, I spent time in the training room and I really liked that. And so I went to grad school for it. And um, then I had a 4.0 there because I actually read the books. And it turns out when you read the textbooks and you comprehend what's going on, it's a lot easier. Um, so anyway, so I had like the, the, the chemistry, the biology and like, um, kind of have a, a lot of construction in my family, um, including a lot of engineering, architecture, and that kind of stuff. So I, when I was younger, my dad even would sometimes take us out of like grade school, take us out of class for a day, and if they if they were installing like some cool thing on a like a sky bridge on, on mm-hmm. a hospital or something, he would take us and go to go down there. You know, so I grew up around construction type of stuff, and then worked a little bit of it, like I said, in college. So. Once I'm here in this brewery, there's chemistry, there's biology, there's all the mechanical stuff, the upkeep, the construction. I mean, it's just like a hodgepodge of all these things. There's no one thing when you're a brewer. And I think that is what just absolutely sucked me in. You know, that's, I've, to this day, here I'm 12 years down the road. And um, in fact, this 4th of July was, that marked my 12th year in professional brewing. Um, I mean, I've certainly had days where I've been tired and sore and I mm-hmm. would just, you know, maybe want to, you know, go sit down or do something, you know, for the day. But I've never had a day where I thought I don't want to go to work today. Yeah. I, I hate this crap. I don't I don't want to do this. Well, so how much of your time now is spent like coming up with new beers or how much of it's like quality control or I guess, you know, how what's a day like? I guess, for a, a brewmaster. Yeah, um, well, for any brewer that's in there, even when we're brewing the same batch, no two days are really alike. There's things that are very different. Um, even when you're brewing the same, we brew a lot of Fantasy Factory. My, my um, lead brewer, Sam Coling, he always says, uh, his quote is, uh, like, shut up and brew Fantasy Factory, you know, because we brew, we brew it so many days a week. But even when you're brewing the same stuff, there's different challenges every day. But that's as a brewer, and then in my position now as a brewmaster and trying to lead the crew and trying to stay ahead of things, like my my days and my weeks are just all over the place. Okay, so Fantasy Factory is, that's your flagship, right? Yeah, you know, we never set off to have a flagship. I mean, 
yeah, what you're saying is correct now. This is sure. This is definitely the house that Fantasy Factory. Built. I mean, do you get to do you get to pick your flagship, or does it kind no. of pick the brewery? <laughs> it kind of yeah. The the market tells you what your flagship is. I mean, when we started off, we thought we'd have four maltier beers, and then um, have like a rotating IPA at all times. Like every season, every quarter, we would just bring out a new IPA because there'd be so much to play with, you know, and always have something rotating. The first one we did was Silk Scorpion when we first opened up in the uh, winter of, uh, you know, end of 2012. So that, like, April or whatever it was, that the next spring one was going to be my next IPA. It happened to be the recipe for Fantasy Factory, and I have not been able to stop brewing it since. So it just stuck. It took off. And especially, like, the, when we brought it out in bottles and the, had the packaging with... had a really good following when we had no real imagery or packaging for it. And mm-hmm. then as soon as we had the imagery and stuff, then it really took off. So where does something like the the recipe for Fantasy Factory come from? Um, so every you know every brewer has a different way of coming up with not only what they're going to brew, but then how they're going to do it. Uh, for me, um, having not been a home brewer, I didn't have you know 15 years of of curiosity and and chasing and and chasing ideas every weekend. Um, so. There's times, you know, like where the Madison Homebrewers come, Club comes in and they start asking questions, suggesting things. And I'm like, oh, my God, I've never. They spend a lot more time thinking about it than me. And I'm, I'm thinking, like, these are great ideas. You know, these are really good things. I Like, I wish, you know, there's some technical things that they, you know, they ask me or that they're pursuing that I that piques my interest. And I, I learn, you know, from, from mm-hmm. them. I learn from them. And then hopefully when they ask me questions, I give good enough answers that they learn from me sometimes. But. I didn't chase that kind of stuff, so what I've sought out to do was just basically look for some, there always for me has to be some kind of inspiration, some kind of story behind what we're going to do. Um, if if I'm just creating something out of whole cloth, I usually just wait for a warm, fuzzy memory or recollection just to boil, bubble to the surface in my, in my circus brain, and then mm-hmm. I kind of latch onto it, and I'm like, oh yeah, that would be this would be fun. I wonder how it would even come about as a beer. What should it be? And then I just kind of chew on it for a while until the answer really comes out. And um, so I look for a story or an inspiration. At the end of the day, I try to just brew an experience. I don't really brew to style. I don't care about styles. I don't care about guidelines. I just try to brew the beer I think that it should exist because I think it's silly for people to get really wrapped up in styles and stuff and then try Mm -hmm. to nitpick you when you try to invent a new style. And they're like, oh, you can't invent that. And like, no, Everything that's beer and styles right now at one point in time was a brand new idea. So this isn't like a closed off conversation of history and now, you know, we can't do it. But um, so like, for instance, uh, Belly Bongos is out right now and I just invented the new style called Vine Pale Ale. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I I, I did find that uh, down by us in Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. Um, So I got to try that. I was wondering, like, what is a vine pale ale? So, Lady Luck for us is my homage to Bordeaux wine. So it's very reminiscent. A lot of red wine drinkers, if they don't say they don't, I really don't like beer. I'm like, yeah, you do. You just <laughs> haven't had the right. Try this, and you'll. Um, and Belly Bongos is kind of trying to be um, like an homage or a hat tip of the hat to White Zinfandel. Okay. And so there, we, I came across these hops at one point in time. One's called Hollertau Blanc, and it's called Blanc, you know, 
uh, because it's it smells all the aromas and stuff are are like white wine and white wine grapes. So mm-hmm. it was called Hallertel Blanc. So it's like already suggesting that. And there was another one called Hall Melon, and that is like super cantaloupe and other melon flavors that are very much like a white wine type of experience. And when I saw the two, my my brain was like, "Hey, want you peanut butter and jelly? Here you go." You know? Yeah. I just immediately when I thought them together, I was like, "Oh, I wonder." We've done Lady Luck. Why couldn't we do one that was kind of more like a white wine? And so with Lady Luck being more, I'm not going to call that like a, a wine red. You know, we just had an imperial red. But it's more this, of a full body. Yeah, yeah, and it being red and everything else, you could totally use imperial, and it would really get the idea across, and then you could tell people the story about it later. This one, last year, when, I, when we first had the idea, two summers ago, we did it as a pilot batch and called it Vine, Vine PA, because um, it sounded like IPA, so it was mm-hmm. like Vine PA, you know? That's where it started from, was Vine PA. And then when we put it into a full production batch for kegs last year, I didn't, I've tried to invent new styles before and ended up running into a brick wall more often. And I just thought, screw it, let's just call it a golden ale. And it didn't sell very well. It said it was hard to really sell it into craft beer accounts, you know, who needed to put on exciting stuff for their customers who wanted exciting beers. And it was an exciting beer, but the style is just golden ale. And so that just hit a brick wall. With and people. that just seems to be a very it's generic. Not exciting. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, so this year when we went to bring it out in bottles, I was like, you know what? And also it doesn't, let's do it. It doesn't look golden. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, like it's if, more straw colored. Yeah. If you pour it, it doesn't look like a golden mm-hmm. ale kind of color. Mm-hmm. It does have a little bit of that lighter yeah. color to it. Well, after a discussion with, with some of our sales guys in, uh, in, in, in Milwaukee, actually we were, Zach was out there one day talking to them and, and he kind of explained, well, more like vine pale ale. And the one guy goes, well, cripes, I could have sold that, you know? Uh-huh. And we're like, well, we thought, like, if we tried to call it Vine Pale, it's like it was going to hit a brick wall, and now it's like, okay, forget it. So when it comes out in bottles, we'll just do what we thought we should have done in the first place and spend more time explaining it, which is fine. But mm-hmm. I've, and I don't know if this is a case of, maybe I experienced it in Montana as well, but we, we do many more seasonals here than I've than I've done, than I did there. Um, but, um it just, I don't mean it to be, I don't know if it's, it's not really a slam. I don't know if it's just human nature and it's the same across everywhere or if it's, or if it's just here. Cause I've only ever experienced, you know, a lot of stuff here, but it's like whenever we try to bring out something that's like brand new style name, inevitably people are like, well, you can't just invent something. You can't, it's got to fall into a different category. And I'm, and I just don't understand it. I'm, yeah. I'm like, you know what, if this came out of, New York or Florida or my, you know, like California and some brewer there, you know, in San Diego invented a new style. Everyone here would be like, well, it's from San Diego. Of course it's a new style. We'll just adopt it right away. That's a great idea. But when it's like your neighbor and sit down the road from you and we're just going to invent a new style, it's like, oh, you can't do that. Who do you think you are? And yeah. It, you know, it was, it was kind of nice when I, I, I tried it. I'm like, oh, this is like really drinkable and it's hotter than heck right now anyways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, it was... It was a good one for just hot weather, yeah. you know, hot, humid weather in Wisconsin, that, you know, summer yeah. kind of beer. So, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. It's easy to take a beer like a, a Saison and mm-hmm. add chamomile. It's easy to say like chamomile Saison or take a, yeah. a pale, like an IPA and call like a hazy IPA and do a and stru- do different things yeah, with kinda, the hops yeah, or something. Kinda like, yeah, kind of like, well, do like a structurally different version of a familiar um, style, mm-hmm. you know, is 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 fairly easy. I mean, people get that because they're already familiar with 
IPA or whatever you're going to do, right? If you make a peanut butter stout or then, you know, like it's kind of obvious. And then, but when you try to just invent a whole new little niche, sure, little genre or whatever you're going to do, that that's a little bit more difficult. And maybe you're getting people, you have to, yeah, I mean, I guess that whole task in and of itself just as a definition is always going to, is difficult because you're trying to convey something you've been working with for two years in your brain and that it immediately made sense in your brain and your brain says vine pale ale vine pa sounds like ipa but like how do you get that out to everyone it's difficult maybe that's really what i'm experiencing is just hard so steve and i are at a little bit of a disadvantage here we haven't been able because we don't live in town here anymore we both grew up here but we aren't here anymore we aren't able to get over for the the brewer series release mm-hmm. that you guys do every month mm-hmm. um Talk to me a little bit about this molasses porter that's going to be coming out on Thursday. So Kyle Cooper, who's actually, you guys see him in the brew house right now. He took over for me okay. on this morning. Oh, okay. yeah. He's the second shift today. That's his beer. So with all of our Brewer Series stuff, um, I, I, let, I let the crew, I, I, I say hands off. That, that's the time for the brewers to stretch their wings and do whatever they want. You know, I, I think it's really important for them. And see they, if something clicks, yeah. too. Well, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've definitely pulled recipes from the pilot stuff up to the full size. So it's, I mean, that's, and so that, that's, an, that's an advantage. And, and in my mind, I definitely see that as a secondary benefit. First and foremost, they spend all their work, most of their work days brewing my recipes and my ideas, you know, and, and whatever. And I think it's important for them to be able to just kind of do what they want to do for a moment. And, um, and I suppose my, it gives them a chance, too, to, like, that could build a resume for them if they come up with something yeah. that really takes off. Yeah. Hey, now I've got something that I'm yeah. make me marketable to go yeah. out. So yeah, I help spend, attract people. I spend a lot of time on the microphone and at, in front of the camera and taking my picture for the website. You know, because it's what I'm supposed to do as the brewmaster. But <laughs> you're the pretty one, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm the prettiest of the ugliest. Um, but the success of this whole place is the team. Mm-hmm. And everywhere we go, I can't trumpet it enough, and I can't, I can't tell the team enough, you know, when I'm back there, how proud I am of them. And, um, you know, everything that we do is because of the team. And, and, and they're just very excellent people. They're uh, very talented, and they're, they're smart and fun, and they'll eat you. If you start screwing up, they'll eat you up pretty quick, you know, yeah. there, which is good because they all keep each other on their toes. Um, so I think it's just... For me, I just love to see them get to do what they want to do. It's important. It's important for them to do that. And it's important for me to create a scenario, a situation where I'm just like, hey, just go have fun, man. Like, here's a platform for you to do it, to publicly yeah. get out. Like, get, I'm on the microphone today. You, I want you to get your chance in the limelight. I want you to have something to show, you know, on our social media to your friends and family and bring your family in for your recipe like that's important to me for them to have that experience and then and and my only qualification my only rule for them is you need to be honest with yourself and with me and, and if and if it sucks it goes down the drain it doesn't go on tap mm-hmm. and beyond that if whatever idea you want to do i don't care how crazy it is but if it sucks it goes down the drain cuz good it's not good enough to waste people's life force to come in for a beer that sucks but well, but how many, how many that, people check it? Do. When, when you get something mm-hmm. new, how many people sample and check before you kind of feel like, oh, okay, oh, before, this is available back. for re- – yeah. So, yeah, we're – so I'm tasting it. I, you know, I'll look at their recipe, and I like I enter it in the brewing software, you know, in our production software. So I see it beforehand, you know, and um, very rarely, very rarely do I ever have anything to suggest, 
you know, as like, hey, I think this, you know, you may want to, you know, change a little bit over here. But sometimes if I'm out, of, if, if there's something that's out of my comfort zone, putting it on the pilot system is the perfect time to do it because maybe I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Maybe my safety zone is, is wrong. And, it, and maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm, my definitions need adjusting. So, um, so some, you know, so most, so I'll be tasting the wort with them on the, you know, they're excited to share it with me and, to, you know, bring me the wort to taste. And then as the beer's fermenting, you know, uh, I, you know, taste samples along the way as it's, as it's, uh, finishing off as it's fermenting and, and, and uh, and growing up and, you know, and, and it, it's been good. And, and so the molasses porter, um, you call it a porter or stout? He called it a porter. Porter. Yep. That's right. Uh, Black not, flats yeah. molasses porter is yeah. what Cal called it. It's it's awesome, is what it is. Because you you brought me stuff on brew day too, like the wort, and I was like, oh my god, this tastes like a slowpoke candy. I love it. It's mm-hmm. one of my favorite candies. And and then he brought it to me when it was uh, about to be racked into kegs, and then when it started to be force carved, and it's just perfect. It's got this beautiful, nice char and roast up front, like like just qualified awesome balanced porter all up front and then as soon as that flavor starts to decline on your palate like a wave of just molasses like really good so more of a dessert beer molasses comes along i that's a tweener that's right in that line you could easily make awesome desserts with this or pair it with an awesome dessert and i and i would just as soon also have it with a nice robust like uh asian dish or steak and potatoes i think it would go on any one of those areas, it would it would it would dominate. So this is something you guys do every. It looks like the third Thursday of every month. Yeah, yeah, third okay. Thursday of every month, we we do that, and then we also have uh, like tap it Tuesdays where we take we, we take another one of an idea and we fill a firkin. It might be existing beer, it might be pilot beer, it might be one of our standard beers, and they'll put it into a firkin with whatever other ingredients they want. So that's another place where they get to play. So we have like the tap it Tuesdays, and then the. The Brewer series release. Is that where like uh, Strawberry Fantasy Factory came from, or was that Stra- a different? Strawberry FF. Um, other things have gotten close, and some future things might come out of what we've done with Firkins for sure. Um, Strawberry and Raspberry Fantasy Factory came out of last year's um, uh, anniversary party. Every year, I try to dream up something fun that's going to be you know just for the anniversary party, and I usually have to start thinking about it six months ahead of time in case it's barreled stuff. Um, uh, two years ago, we did Fantasy Fest. I was just like, Fantasy Fest was really, was really going. We're having a good time. And I just thought, you know, like we had talked about doing a different version of it, you know, at all. Like we just throw down ideas and I'm like, screw it. You know, we should do, for the anniversary party, we should do like eight or 10 different versions of Fantasy Fest. Like we'll just add different fruits in, like just into kegs, into finished kegs, just to see what tastes good and what does. You know, and, and it'll be fun to have like this flight with all these different versions of Fantasy Factory. And it was really a good idea for the anniversary party because you were only getting it here, mm-hmm. you know, limited quantity. It was fun. It was really worth the experience. And then after from that, it was also a day where we had a little bit of market research. And 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 from all of that, we decided or, or learned that like raspberry was like the best one of them all. Because that's the one you've actually packaged and mm-hmm. has been available mm-hmm. outside the brewery. Mm-hmm. That's right. And it's actually been even, I think, even compared with our regular beers um, offerings, it's been like the fastest selling package. Okay. You know, we only had it for a short time and it was, you know, limited, but it the, the, how fast it sold out was... I think faster than anything else we've had this year so that was a that was a, a telling thing but uh, yeah raspberry won first place 
Strawberry was, was, I think, tied with something else, but it was like more of a personal thing that I wanted to try. Okay. Strawberry. And then last, last year. Well, and it's strawberry season right now, right? Exactly. It's the perfect time to have it. And uh, we, around October, November, we're already setting up the production calendar, like the release calendar for the next year. Mm-hmm. So we can get all of our distributors on board with what's going to happen. And so like in the single batch series, there was a lot of just blank spots, but we knew it was going to be one every month. And we were able to fill in a couple of those blanks right away with like strawberry fantasy factory. Sure. And, a couple other ones that we've done this year. Yeah. So, uh, what are what are the beers you're excited about coming up? Because you know we're kind of hitting end of summer, into yeah. fall, and I think uh, people kind of expect styles to change at that time. So. Well, I'm really excited about what just came out a couple of weeks ago. The America AF, the watermelon Berl- mm-hmm. Berliner Kolsch. So that was like one of those mashup style mashups where. We did more like a Berliner Weren't you mashing up a watermelon outside in some video? <laughs> yeah, I smashed the heck out of that. We only had one, too, so it was like one take. And, <laughs> and so we had like three different iPhones trying to make sure we got it just right, and I smashed that thing. I put a hole through that palette, too. <laughs> it's In slow motion, you can really hear the report. It's awesome. Um, uh, but that one, I, I've you know I've been interested by Berliner Weiss beers, and, uh, and I'd never done a Kolsch before, and I thought, hey, man, let's try to get like a sour mash type of base to it, but then let the coal yeast, you know, get after it and add a little bit more, maybe a touch of sulfur character. And at first it was going to be a red, white, and this, so that was an idea that was mm-hmm. like, I've always wanted to do a red, white, and blue beer, you know, around July 4th time. And, I, and the first thing I always thought was like red, white, and blueberry ale, you know? So that's where the whole thing started from. Then when I started doing some testings and I had, I had watermelon, white grape, and blueberry. And when I started putting them all together, um, it tasted pretty good. Um, but it, it was like gray dishwater is what it looked like. It looked, it looked horrible. Really? It, yeah. It just would, uh, uh, visually was not appealing at all. Cause mm-hmm. the, the blueberry, like when you actually work with like blueberry puree and concentrate, it's not what you think about when you have like a marker or a crayon or somebody says that's a blueberry color. It's a, it's really like dark purple. And then when you start mixing dark purple with bright pink, cause the way the watermelon concentrate comes through and then with the white grape, it's it's very different than Welch's white grape juice, you know? Yeah. It's very different. So when you put it all together, it starts making this gray, nasty color. And I was like, oh, this isn't great. And then I found myself just rooting for the watermelon. I, I, I was just cheering it on the whole time while I was drinking it and, you know, the little tests. And I'm like, screw it. It's just going to be watermelon. Mm-hmm. So I'd never worked with watermelon before. I'd never done a Berliner Weiss, and I'd never made a Kolsch. So we slammed them all together, and it came out perfect. It tastes like a watermelon Jolly Rancher in the end, and it... It's only 3.3%, which is physical proof that I indeed can brew something under 5% alcohol. <laughs> every time I try to do a session, it, I've like write a recipe for 4.8 and it comes out like 5.7. And I got to figure that one out. I'm using the wrong, using the wrong program. So th- this, this one's really a, a summer beer when yeah. you're just sitting around and having an afternoon. Yeah. And it, it has um, been one of the top selling pints on in the tap room. Mm-hmm. And it's sold really well in the market. And everyone who's had it, even there's been a lot of... Uh, some of my other uh, friends that work at breweries, you know, they'll come over here and, and, and they've been enjoying it. And, and my, my hop, the guy who's the regional um, sales, uh, sales manager for YCH Hops, uh, he was just in here. We were doing a pilot brew with him the other day for great taste for YCH. And then he was like, man, you really got me hooked on some of this watermelon stuff. It's really good. And just kind of 
everyone who's had it just kind of gets its teeth into you. And it's just so easy drinking. So next, are I there hope- people who are looking for more session beers? Because a lot yeah. of the craft brews, I mean, yeah. you know, those IPAs, there are a lot of them that are like six percent or better. Like is yeah. what you're looking at for the most part, which you know you got to kind of be aware of yeah. at least. Yeah, I th- I think people are and and I am. You know, I mean. I have a couple of kids now, so like I'm usually tired all the time, and having a couple of higher alcohol beers is I, I just don't have the energy for it. But um, it's uh, yeah, I think I think generally I think people are interested in that. I think it's all going to go in cycles and waves. What people look for and want, and at any point in time, it's gonna, it's kind of fun to watch the landscape change. But um, yeah, I think that beer I think I want to put in cans next year if we could. Okay, it just screams like. Put me in a can, take me to the beach. You know, it's it's good. Yeah, I love it. That one does seem to particularly well match up with that idea. Um, how much canning are you guys doing at this point? Zero. Oh, you guys are still at zero. <laughs> okay, we're doing just the bottom. We're getting teed up right now. We're going to be sending out Fantasy Factory to get bottled at Stevens Point. So we're still going to brew it, and then we're going to tanker ship it up there. Um, the same way that Capitals has done for years, and and WBC gets their stuff canned there. But uh, Stevens Point has a brand new canning line. Um, it's only like a year and a half old, or so. It's okay. really nice stuff. Uh, but we're gonna send Fantasy Factory there to get canned. We we have the design finally finished out. We got the printing uh, all approved and proofed and everything. And we're actually just trying to actually right now we're lining up the first batch to get taken up there, and we're. We're being held up at the moment by um, the global demand for canning and cans, just raw cans, has gone up. So um, who we're buying from, they're kind of they're a couple weeks behind in just producing and printing cans because oh, okay. you can only run, they're like running max speed seven days a week and they just can't keep well, yeah, up as much. The so. number of craft breweries that are it's canning now has just crazy. exploded. Like you can yeah. find it in a yeah, lot that of was stuff in cans. Five years ago, that was no. almost unheard of. I mean, it yeah. was just a few were starting to dip their toe into it, I guess, like New Belgium. But like it yeah. really, it was a very few. And now it's just everywhere, which is, you know, it's, it's good on a lot of levels. I think it, it lowers cost. It lowers mm-hmm. impact environmentally for shipping. Like mm-hmm. it does a lot of that stuff. So... Well, and do you think the cans do? Uh, do you think they keep it fresh, the the beer fresher longer? I th- I think with, I don't think, in that sense, whether you're talking bottles or cans, it's all about how it's packaged. Hundred mm-hmm. percent. You know, like just you could have a really really great canning line, and if you're not operating it correctly, you can get a high do in it, and uh, and it'll spoil, and then. I mean the same thing with bottling. Like we're, our bottling lines from the early '70s. It's like it used to be an old soda filling machine, and it doesn't have. Yeah, Laverne and Shirley worked that one. Yeah, <laughs> it, that it seems has, to be kind of a common story. Yeah. Every time I go to a, a microbrewery and do the tour, it's like, yeah, here's our our uh, bottling line that was you it know sucks. vintage 1971. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the problem with that, it's I mean the lines like overall is running fine. You know, it has its, a lot of its own quirks, and it definitely has a lot of its own challenges. But uh, it doesn't have uh, a prevac system on it, <clears throat> so that's the biggest thing for us for bottling. Is that um, you know, like a, a newer bottling machine, when the bottle marries up with the line, it'll charge the bottle with CO2, then it'll vent it, it'll like suck it out, charge it with CO2 again, it'll suck that out again, and then put the CO2 charge for, before as the counter pressure for for, for filling. So your DO level is. Are very low. Your dissolved oxygen level is very low. 
and dissolve the oxygen above maybe anything else is going to kill your beer and package faster, you know, maybe heat, you know, but heat accelerates oxidation. Um, but uh, with our line, we don't have the Prevac, so we have a liquid nitrogen doser that tries to, it, it puts a little glob of liquid nitrogen in each bottle before it goes in, and then the liquid nitrogen evaporates and tries to push out the atmosphere, and that's all we get. It's the only thing we, the only chance we get to get the oxygen out. So, yeah, so, you know, bottles versus cans, uh, it's... You don't have a preference either no, way? Well, no, the mach- it's the machine, it's the mm-hmm. operators, it's, it's everything, so... Well-packaged beer is is good. Yeah, <laughs> and good beer that's not packaged well ends up sucking. You yeah, know, just that's yeah, just no. how it is. Well, but again, the best way to do it is to come to the brewery and get it fresh, right? Hundred percent. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Any more? Okay. I mean, take like I'm a layperson. Take a layperson. Put them behind the wheel of a Ferrari, and they'll probably put it into a light pole. You yeah. Know? There you go. Yeah, but, that's uh, kind of what it is, isn't it? So yeah. Or you take a really good driver and put them behind a piece of crap car, and you're amazed at what they can do with it. So, hey, Ryan, thanks for uh, giving us some time to uh, talk to you yeah. today. It was great. So uh, for anybody interested, check out Carbon 4 uh, Brewing online at carbon4.com. Yeah. Or, as always, come to the brewery. Come right? to the brewery, yeah. We have a lot of stuff up on Facebook. We'll be talking about a lot of our upcoming beers. Like uh, our October Ale was just uh, centrifuge this morning. I think it's one of the best batches so far. So, you know, we'll be talking about that kind of stuff. We're always trying to tee up our next beers and next projects coming up. So Uh, if you get a chance, yep, head over to Carbon 4 Brewery on Kinsman Boulevard. Okay, that's going to do it for this week's show. Uh, Before we go, we want to give a shout-out to some of our patrons this week. JP, you want to take over for that? Yeah, well, I'm doing this partially because you get these last names. <laughs> uh, yeah, th- say thanks to two of our uh, new ball and club patrons, Charlie Robluski and Jason Haldisleben. Hab- uh, and I know before you read out here again, next week Saturday we're going to the baseball game. I'm coming up. We're going to record together, but we're also going to uh, either, but hopefully, meet up a little bit with with some folks beforehand if they want to. But then hopefully see some people at uh, at Miller Park for the Dodgers game. Yeah, we'll definitely be up by the the craft beer bar. I think probably like the fourth inning. Yeah, we'll we'll put all that information out on the various social media. Yeah, so am I gonna uh, have to like am I gonna have to like shave my beard so like all three of us don't have beards? I know we we got a little oh, bit wow. of a you, yeah we got a little bit of a thing going right now. That'd be a little too. Or maybe you wouldn't I'm be able to tell us apart. I'm the only one that doesn't have any gray in it. <laughs> you oh. are a jerk. Nailed it. Okay, with that, uh, we're going to call it a day. So uh, you can join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash mketailgate. Patrons at the ball and glove level will receive the Minor League Extra podcast. As always, follow us on Twitter at mketailgate. You can also submit questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or through our Facebook page for Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and we're in the Google Play Store. You can also leave reviews and help people find the podcast. Thanks for listening. Look for us again next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate.
together. Fair 